Yeah, I think one of the most ominous things about, I can't even remember which lockdown it was, uh, was that Amazon had sold out of podcast mics. Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. The, the coming wave. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, this is, you know, um, we're, we're the good content creators, not like everybody else. <laughs> That's um, right. So we're excused. We're, we're allowed. Right. The, the Bunga Boys, you guys got in on it uh, a long time ago. Yeah, we've been going for, for a little while, almost like three, four years. Um, I mean, I have to confess when Alex suggested doing a podcast, I thought, I didn't think it was a very good idea. I was very skeptical, but he was right. Well, so. why were you skeptical about it? Well, I just I just thought, oh, this is going to, you know, it's going to be a bit of a flash in the pan. Mm. You know, everybody listens to Chapo at this point, but, mm. you know. um, but actually, I think it's, as mainstream media has probably become more and more unhinged and unwatchable slash unlistenable to um, podcasts. Are, I don't know. I listen to a lot more than I, you know, than I would ever possibly have, have imagined. So yeah, same here. Well, it's interesting how I guess now podcasts are thought of as the, the one area of media that the dissidents can go to. And um, it's, it's seen as like this, this last vestige and, and, and uh, it, it's like uh, they're shutting down all the like the quote unquote fascists off of the the mainstream platforms, but now they're all, you know, the the fear mongering is is about uh, the podcasts now. So that's where well, all the, ba- the bad guys go. Yeah, they um, <clears throat> there was a bit of podcast at the new punk rock at one point. Um, maybe still, maybe post punk at this point, but um, yeah, it's only probably only a matter of time before. You know, some of the some of the most prominent, you know, Red Scare. What's left? They're gonna get get taken off. So. Yeah, uh, Red Red Scare is that? Yeah, that's it. Red Scare. They got um they got suspended from Twitter. Oh, just yeah. Well, I mean, it was like all these people celebrating. Yeah, it's great. Trump's been Trump's been censored. This is this. How can this possibly have any negative consequences for us? How can this boomerang? ever return to hit us right in the face and now yeah. of course you know it has done so of course of course yeah there's always usenet i feel like uh things things really go to shit i think people are going to be moving to other corners of the web and just trading mp3s like like the old uh, <laughs> yeah bulletin board days or maybe dial up maybe we'll go maybe people will get dial up again uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, we could, you know, resurrect Napster and sort of have secret pirated MP3s of all the all the good podcasts, or yeah. like uh, photocopied transcripts. You know, new radical publishing for 2021. Back to the, I don't know when that was, late 90s model. Then, then uh, the FBI will seed those files with like EXE files that <laughs> infect you with the virus, yeah. LimeWire style. Yeah. LimeWire op. Yeah. so that's all to come isn't it yeah so uh i've discovered you guys uh the offa bunga bunga podcast i think when lee phillips was on and i was uh searching uh at the time you know i was learning about the debate over degrowth and Mm. pro-growth marxism and uh, that podcast was a good introduction to Lee Phillips and some of the stuff that he's done. Mm. Um, so I've listened to a few. I, I've listened to a few other episodes over over time. I think you know you guys are all working on a book together now. You've been podcasting for four years, and 
Um, so the book, let me know if I get it wrong. It's called The End of the End of History, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it just it just rolls off the tongue, just like the, <laughs> just like the name of the podcast. We've we've really maneuvered ourselves into some pretty <laughs> bad marketing corners <laughs> um, with our choice of that sort of thing. Yeah, it's um, uh, politics in the twenty first century is the subtitle. If you're going to plug it, I feel like I sh- I feel like I should because it's is it is coming out in uh, June. I think it uh, it does it does reflect kind of the uh, the overarching theme of the podcast that you've that you've mm. been building up to maybe you didn't know you were building up to it for a long time but uh that seems to be the the running theme is kind of a process was set a process was started like 50 years ago let's say and it's been grinding and grinding and all kinds of really interesting things have been happening that have kept the process going and people have maybe talked about some of it some of the process but it's really, it's, it's beyond like most people's control or even capacity to, to comprehend. And then it's, I think COVID and some of the people that have noticed with what's happening with the great reset and all that, um, COVID has massively accelerated this process. And now the process may, there may be like, there may be nothing left for it to grind into dust and we're going to have to figure out what's, what's next. I mean, mm. also seems like it's out of our control and, and you guys are trying to analyze like, well, what what is next and how could pe- how could people on the left even mount a challenge to it right actually the, the the damage article was based on a bit of one of the chapters in the book um and the only reason why i'm saying that i have to plug the book is that alex and phil have have, have definitely said like you can't you can't not uh can't not do it so i feel i would feel very space commune bomb. i feel <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you should. You, we're, you, we're kingmakers here. It's, it's it's it was kind of fun, but also very you know kind of frustrating and in good ways to do a book with with people that you you know you've known for a little while. So, yeah, you guys could um, <clears throat> could do do a book. You know, that's the there was a Chapo book as well, I think. So, you know, this is it's the it's the it's the okay. So the, these are your podcast pals that you're <clears throat> that you wrote the book with. Yeah, yeah, we've known each other. I think actually it was good that we knew each other before we did it. Um, otherwise, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's it's more fraught, I think, because the last few years of politics have have raised a lot of questions that I don't think anybody saw coming. And yeah, there's a lot of things that you have to take a, a line on. Um, yeah. So you can end up, I think, falling out with people politically quite who at the start of maybe you know even 2016 you would have had a lot. Of, in common with um now you might be you know might be certain things that you disagree quite quite strongly on so yeah it's good that, i think good that we knew each other before yeah the last the arguments i think this is sort of how your your article starts out the the moral minoritarianism from the ashes of the left um from the ashes of left populism um is sort of like these last i don't know four years or maybe a little bit longer than that have been a series of events that have really kind of separated um people and their you know their politics and how they handle sort of the incoming like changing world um and and i always refer to it as people kind of hitting this wall because at a certain point you realize sort of this more naive framework that you're you're start you start out on starts to 
when you level up, you, you hit a spot where you're like, okay, I, there are some contradictions here and I can either go in one direction or in the other. And, and one direction feels like doubling down on kind of like the same naive, like hoping this will work, even though we know it doesn't. And the other direction is sort of this nihilistic, like, oh shit, this is bigger than like, I can even wrap my brain around and there's nothing mm. I can do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, would be sort of my, I guess the fundamental analysis of left populism is that there's, there is a, or there was always a, a contradiction in terms of the, the class composition of these left populist groups. And they had some maybe older working class supporters who'd been felt like they'd been alienated from kind of these neoliberalized establishment center left parties. Um, and then this younger, probably more ed educated, more kind of mobile geographically as well, activist based. And one of the interpretations is essentially that this contradiction was couldn't be handled. Um, and another kind of analysis is basically that the the left populism and its future course is going to represent the the interest, the the, the material interest of the latter group. So mm -hmm. it will be the the policies will have the distinctive mark of the uh, PMC or the lower PMC um supporters so yeah. i think you know that's 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 what in my my take would be that's what we're going to see in the next few years playing out and that's what will determine at least in the british context you know what the left looks like and what it does yeah yeah i don't i don't follow british politics you know as much as i should i'm you know one of those typical americans who just you know just cares about america but <laughs> I, mean, I mean every everybody cares about america i think chris yeah. says it's the one thing in the world that everybody wants is a vote in the american elections so yeah there is a you know everybody knows about american politics in addition to their their domestic ones definitely yeah or a little bit you guys uh even during the height of uh the george floyd protests uh it was very interesting to to hear and maybe maybe it was reading or also you did an episode um, talking about how the, the, it was almost like a new form of American imperialism that was playing out where uh, the George Floyd protests spread to Europe, but stripped of the context. So they weren't Black Lives Matter wasn't really it was a global movement, but it was not really applied to the contexts of mm. communities in Europe. Um, yeah, very, I'm, very interesting to read about that. Yeah, it was a, it was a strange phenomenon that I think we we discussed a little bit, and then Alex, um, one of the co-hosts, wrote a really good bit in in Damage magazine, as um, where he was sort of yeah having a look at this. It's it's because it's weird. It's kind of a you talk about soft power, like countries have the military hard power, and then their kind of um, cultural influence, <clears throat> and it but it wasn't that at all. It was clearly everybody copying and importing American ideas, but this particular American idea was anti-Americanism. So you saw all of these protests, which took the form of kind of protests against specifically racialized police brutality, um, which obviously make a lot more sense in the US than in any other context, but they were copied over quite, quite straightforwardly. So you had this um, triumph of american idealism in um in one kind of way to put it uh yeah so it was a it was a, i think it was a, a strange phenomenon how and it's now completely global and i think will continue to be very influential on the left in the next next few years definitely that's so interesting because it reminds me of how 
the U.S. is this has always been like this exporter of of media and like movies and cinema and yeah. you know propaganda. So it's like you know now activism is like the new it's the new media it's the new kind of entertainment it's because it's experiential too right it's like you're in the movie you're you're part of the like the theme of of whatever entertainment mm. spectacle is going on. Yeah, and it's it's proved to be very. Um very captivating very um yeah i think something about the experience of it um and this of course was in the it seems like such a long time ago that, and it, i might even get the dates wrong even though it was only like six months ago so it's like you know this was may june in in the uk um you know we just had we'd had a lockdown that had just had just finished so everybody was obviously full of energy kind yeah. of pent up wanting to change something um and then, you know, there was some really, it was a, quite a strange reversal because previously there'd been a, a really strong, um, um, I guess, social norm against meeting in large groups, against protesting of any sort. And then yeah. when the, the, the kind of BLM protests happened, everybody switched and it was like, okay, this is a good thing. This is, you know, to be supported. And, you know, I obviously would support the right and the, you know, the, the necessity of, of protests of all sorts, but it really captured... Um, a moment and was was a cause with surprisingly almost universal public support um so yeah now it's you know still still present in everything from kind of uh corporate um mission statements to before football that soccer games where people yeah. you know players are still uh, still kneeling yeah they have like black lives matter like on the football helmets now and things like that it's so it's so strange it's everywhere now it's it's like the biggest brand in the u.s it's it's wild I mean, mm. my yeah my biggest moment with it was when uh before every single call of duty match the screen would go black and it would say black lives matter <laughs> and then the game would wow. start and you'd have you'd be playing like as a police officer or something like you know the skit half the skins are like military police type people it's so interesting to think about it in like in you know great britain or, or anywhere else in the world too because it feels like such a, a, an american thing because it was you know sort of kicked off catalyzed by very specific police brutality events um we have this history this very like overt history of enslaving black people so that's sort of like the the root, the backstory of all of it, um, and then you know it's sort of crested along with our and and then ended along with our um, our presidential election. So it it almost like it it fits our narrative here very well. Is like it, it's it's very obviously tied to like the U.S. But it, it's funny how like I guess we really are this exporter of these social movements. It, 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 yeah. it's 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 weird to how, how does how does black lives matter get translated into you know other countries well yeah i mean and that's that's i think the the question is to how so obviously some of the slogans were were retained um and interestingly even sometimes in like english or in or kind of just uh, slightly translated versions so you had um some some quite strange constructions um, and then, of course, there was still some translation to local circumstances because it's not like the UK is a um, it's a society which doesn't have its own uh, history and obviously race being a, a part of that. So, yeah, and I think I guess the 
you know one thing which i didn't really talk, i didn't talk about in the the damage article at, at all but i guess i was thinking about it a little bit was what's the you know what's the the left's um role going to be in this in these kind of movements because obviously i think a lot of the blm protesters or or people who have sympathy with blm would would put themselves on the left politically um but not everybody um i think there's there's been some pushback on some more from some more socially conservative um elements of of the left or at least in britain and so it's going to be interesting to see how that how that argument is made because i don't think it will be straightforwardly a political argument i think there'll be a lot of a lot of moral elements um in the coming sort of months and years to to try to I guess, get the orientation of the whole of the left behind um, projects like BLM. Yeah, and, I, and to, um, I think like with our project and with what a lot of the stuff that we talk about on our podcast and our videos um, is kind of the, uh, the, con the, the constructs of the left and how, um, whether it's, whether it's uh, a movement like Black Lives Matter that is, you know, very quickly gets professionalized and philanthropized. You met you mentioned um, in your article Extinction Rebellion. Um, we could go on and on about that. And then you also mentioned how um, a third of the Corbyn coalition is kind of moving into the NGO world um, instead of you know kind of a post politics bloodless project um, where people can feel like they're they're doing the work so to speak, but um, they're not really building like a populist movement that's going to like confront uh, capital head on. Um, so I think w the theme with our, with a lot of stuff we talk about is that uh, all of this stuff is constructed to kind of be a release valve for people who know that, that things are bad, that, you know, know that things are getting worse for almost everybody. Um, but what do you do with them? And how do you manage that, uh, that, that discomfort and that energy and how do you put it into a kind of a harmless direction? So, um, mm. you know, your article talks, you, you kind of call it uh, moral minoritarianism, um, where people are going beyond politics, um, to be consulted about their particip political participation rather than, you know, where the, the, you know, you, we're asking for our voices to be heard but we're not actually like building a movement to, to crush, you know, the, <laughs> to crush the, the forces that are oppressing us. Um, so, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that in terms of uh, some of these things being constructed to, to manage people or to, to manage the, um, the discontent that a lot of people have? Yeah, I think so. One of the analyses of of left populism, so to take, I think it works well for for, for Bernie as well as for for Corbyn, um, is that it was an attempt to essentially mobilise people um, and particularly to appeal to to people who were younger, who who felt in their day to day lives the um, that things manifestly weren't getting better. In fact, they were getting worse, um, and particularly compared to their parents' generation, their chances of buying a house, of, of having a stable, meaningful job uh, seemed to be very low. So the question was, was basically, how do, you, how do you get those people involved in politics? How do you mobilize them? Um, and I think to be, you know, to be, to simplify a little bit, 
the situation now is that in the aftermath of, of Brexit, particularly in the in the British context, you had an opportunity or you had the an unexpected situation whereby a massive number of people participated in politics, albeit in a referendum context, and issued an instruction to their representatives, which the representatives didn't want to carry out. So you had a you had a real politicization um, that came out of um, Brexit and you know, there are various things about how that that was mobilized or how what that was the turnout was for, uh, for Brexit. Like what percentage of the population voted in that? Um, I think it was around 60 percent. OK, um, so it was famously uh, 52. It was close, close call. 52 percent voted to leave and 48 percent to, to remain. So you had you had 17.4 million people um, voting to leave the EU. So it was a you know, big number of people. Um, whichever way you, you, you slice it. Um, so yeah, I guess then the question today is how do you, in this context of repoliticization, how do you manage these, exactly as you said, how do you manage these, these political or pre-political demands for change? Um, and I think one of the things which worries me quite a lot is the turn potentially towards deliberative democracy. Um, or towards things like citizens assemblies, because mm. if you're consulting people, and it is quite an NGO type, uh, style tactic, if you're consulting people, you're basically saying, rather than listening to everybody and having a binding decision, a binding um, political process that we are going to have to follow, instead we're going to work out who we need to talk to, see what their insights are, um, you know, empower them to have the right sorts of conversations, and then we can kind of take those insights and we can, you know, develop them in a way so that we can have some, some kind of intelligent policy proposals. Well, you're basically describing market research. They're basically doing market research at this point. They're doing, yeah, they're consulting maybe. demographics. They're not actually doing, and, and this I think is a real hinging point of what you're talking about is um, the citizens assemblies, which um, maybe we should go over for people listening what what that is really quickly, right? What, what's a what's a brief de definition of a citizens assembly? Is basically um, Alex, do you want to explain, or George, do you want to explain? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of um, I heard about them first because of Cooperation Jackson and what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi, um, when they when the I think it was the mayor there that endorsed Bernie Sanders after a citizens assembly or a series of citizens assemblies. And I remember there was a lot of consternation there because obviously like Jackson, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, um, majority black city. Um, and I know that there were articles after the endorsement process where I, I think it was um, Chakwe Lumumba's son, who's the mayor of the city, he endorsed Bernie and there was pushback from the community that said, this didn't really reflect the majority of the community. This reflects the result of the citizens assembly. And we believe that the citizens assembly was set up to get a, a certain result. Um, so basically, yeah, citizens assemblies are just kind of like workshops or sherets where um, a certain group can be um, invited and then ushered through a, a process and, um, yeah, that's about. Right. I think that's about so it. So <laughs> it's like taking just a slice of the of the of a population anywhere, like a and 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 saying like this 
it's almost like taking a jury of people, like select selecting a, a jury of, of people. Although in this process, you know, somebody has to do the selecting. So there might be some bias there. Uh, so, you know, a, a group of people can be selected and then, you know, asked questions. And this takes the place of actual democratic voting and democratic consensus. So this kind of is twofold in a way that it, it, it subverts democracy because it doesn't actually address the entire population and, and get a consensus among the entire population. And it also acts as, as a, um, like a market research focus group, which is where they get together a bunch of people and they, and they, they find out what the people in charge find out, what are the opinions? What are the, what are the people saying on the street? And then they can then craft their messages to, you know, appeal to the regular people and, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily have to represent them. It just has to appeal to them. Those two things can be totally separate. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's really well put. And I would say that in the British context, at least, it also seems that the, the kind of depoliticizing role or the kind of the dampening down of, of demands that's achieved through processes like citizens assemblies comes through claims that you know, we ha we consulted with people, we've listened as politicians, we've, you know, mm -hmm. we've listened, we understand. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, that's not, you know, it depends on, I guess, your political position. But if you, we hear defend... you, we see you. Yeah. And it's <laughs> like, actually, no, I want, you know, I want power. I don't want yeah. to be listened to. Right. Um, I want to be able to participate in a binding vote where the, you know, the majority gets to say, this is the direction in which we're going to change society. Uh, that's the only way, you know, I think you'd ever get to a radically different sort of society that we obviously, in my opinion, de desperately need. Yeah. Um, but I think it, yeah, it was really striking how this sort of strategy from, for managing this repoliticized environment um, was, was lent on by certain parts of the British left because the, you know, it was all in this shadow of this big vote, which everybody thought was not going to be very important in 2016, the referendum. Um, and then it produced a result that pretty much nobody on the British left wanted. Um, so you had, you know, you had a turn. It wasn't immediate, but it was quite, quite striking um, towards things like um, consultative processes. Sortition reared its head again. The idea that you pick people by lot to... Um, to, to make political decisions, things like epistocracy or giving more votes to more educated people, which mm. I thought had gone out the window with, with Mill, uh, that, that came back as well. So it was clear that there was a, a whole range of options to try to um, move away from the one person, one vote, like binding majoritarian decision-making process. Um, yeah, and it also, I guess it's quite an NGO or you might say charity or third sector in the UK. Um, approach these assemblies or consultative processes. Interesting. And uh, so in terms of um, how people, how this appeals to people on the left versus um, how people in power see these, these processes. Uh, so people on the left, I f at least this is my impression is that uh, people that are kind of open to NGO style or third sector politics or post politics kind of stuff, 
um, after the left has gotten beaten down over and over again, it must feel nice that some nice people are coming and saying like, oh, we want to hear your voice and democracy doesn't work anymore. And we, we have this people's assembly. And I think it, it's an appealing um, idea. I mean, that, I don't know if you watched our video about um, will the revolution be funded? That's what's happening in Kingston is that, um, you know, there's this kind of appeal to people where, um, oh, like, as you can see, the outcomes for everyone is, are getting worse. And the answer is not more democracy. It's actually less democracy. You know, someone, someone that already agrees with you is coming here and uh, we're going to make you feel better. <laughs> you're going to feel better and you're going to be able to uh, enact small changes in a, uh, you know, comforting, nice way. Well, I think the word minoritarianism really sums up the problem, right? Because it's this idea that, and, and we hear this over and over again, is you have to center the voices of the most affected and, and, and identitarianism policies are, you know, on the left are very much in favor of the most marginalized person. So this person who fits like every single criteria and, and, and sort of like looking to this person or group of people who have all the, all the check boxes to sort of like have all the answers and, and lead and, and, and it's, absolutely the opposite of what what we're trying to do which is like a populist you know um egalitarian society that that is good for everyone and i guess those in power are trying to sort of weaponize the this idea that like well you're going to i, I hear this a lot from libertarians where they're they they say things like um mob rule or um what was the other one I heard the other day? It was uh, tyranny the, of the majority. Tyranny of the majority, right? This idea that somehow, like, most people are just assholes, and they're gonna screw over the little guy, and that's we have to we have to prevent that from happening. And I, I think that's kind of yeah. like along the lines of these these movements. No, I think um, I think in some ways my my politics has got a lot more simple probably a lot some people i know would say probably a lot cruder um in the in the last few years um because it seems to me that this has become the central dividing line um in in you know in british politics and, and i think probably in american politics as well it's essentially what is your opinion of the working class do you think mm -hmm. that they're all xenophobic racist um fascist even and mm -hmm. essentially the 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 weight of a majority decision doesn't really need to be listened to because people's votes people's political opinions are illegitimate mm -hmm. um and unfortunately that's the side that the left in general is on um yeah. you might you know might have a, a some exceptions or some reasons why that could be the case and then on the other side is basically just an attempt to have more democracy eventually I, I mean, and I think people would have different views as to how far that democratizing would go. I would put myself on the position where you don't have democracy unless you have collective decisions over the economy. Um, but, you know, that doesn't seem to be the, the position at all that the left is taking. Instead, there are lots of reasons why the weight, the, the previously, like even the moral weight of having a vote that's binding and having the majority of people supporting one one cause um, can can be undermined. You have you know various sorts of 
progressive contempt for deplorables who vote the wrong way. Right. Um, well, and that's supposed to be a left wing position, but it's obviously not. All Republicans are ter- are are uh, domestic terrorists now in 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 the U.S. You know, it's it's wild shit. It's really wild. Yeah, and you don't use the word localism at all in your article, but uh, and I I know the word the word might mean something a little different in the the U.K. context um, than it does here because I think here it's a little it's a little more liberal liberally applied here, but. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, I know there was a localism law that was passed nationally in Britain in like 2011 or something. And um, there was kind of a, a fetishization of, of local decision-making that I don't know. I haven't read about the connection to Brexit and mm-hmm. localism, but um, can you talk yeah. about that a little bit, just that that mindset in uh, the UK? Hmm. So I, I think it's, it's quite a complex um, question or quite a complex problem but i think there's a few different sort of strands one is i mean that period of the the early 2010s um this was kind of the high point of of the big society i don't know if you guys have heard of this it was um david cameron as prime minister wanted to put some money behind essentially the 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 third sector so not not the state and not the um private sector to essentially produce some social capital to produce some kind of local organizations and some community resources of, of various different um, various different sorts and a lot of this was actually ended up with with NGOs um, taking on parts of um, service delivery and various other things which used to be part of the state so that was kind of one of the high points that that period including 2011 as you mentioned um, of a specific sort of localism, I, I guess my, um, and then I get, you know, my story would be that one of the um, major questions or one of the major challenges that's facing the current conservative administration, um, particularly post 2019 election, where they won a lot of seats, which had previously been, been labor in the, the North of England uh, and the Midlands is how are you going to address the, really massive regional inequalities within the UK. Um, the It's just, it's basically, you have London, which is a different place from the rest of, from the rest of the country. You have the South, which is, includes some quite um, wealthy places, particularly in, if you can commute to London. And then you have other parts of the country, which have been systematically underserved by all sorts of um, services, even, so, for example, today there was an announcement of this railway between um, where Ashington and Newcastle, thirty-four million pounds, which is not that much, but it's more than previously had been given to building a, a railway in the north of England. So, sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but the the, the current sort of question around localism, I think, is going to be how will the Tories look to address regional disparities um, and will the left be willing to try to take its project beyond um, quite uh, beyond kind of metropolitan um, uh, its new heartlands essentially particularly cities like you know parts of London Manchester um, Liverpool Um, and I think this is going to be a real question as to whether the left is looking predominantly at the local level or is trying to have a national 
um, project right. because there are some there are some strong areas where you know people seem pretty pretty left wing. Right, because uh, the last paragraph of the article, and I don't know if we shouted out the article specifically, but it's in Damage Magazine online. You just search moral minoritarianism and it should come up. Uh, so you say at the end of the article, I'll just read a couple of sentences. Um, Another possibility is the retreat from the political level of the nation state and national majorities to the politics of the city and more geographically constrained urban struggles, celebrating forms of social economy or mutual aid above national coalition building. If these or similar anti-majoritarian morally inflected ideas are embraced as central to a left populist continuity project, then the political value of majority decisions can be undermined and any future post-COVID mobilization can be managed. And so th th that I think that's like the central, that's where everything hinges uh, for the future of the left, I feel like, is that, you know, in this, these sentiments are everywhere. You know, this is a global thing. This is like in the US too, leftists are turning inward, turning, thinking local, um, getting involved in these kind of NGO uh, style, you know, small democracy projects where they're doing citizens assemblies and mutual aid um, to try to like, you know, take care, we take care of us, not the government can't take care of us. Um, but in fact, like in order to fix these regional disparities and to redistribute, true, do true redistribution that brings everyone, you know, back on a level playing field, uh, you would have to have a national movement. And that would require some kind of populism where uh, the working class, knows what's in it for them and you know is leading it and they're like yeah we we want we want to redistribute everything across the world you know across the country and be equal but mm -hmm. by doing all these tiny little projects we're kind of cutting off the uh th that possibility i think yeah i think it's a it's kind of a tricky one because on the one hand i think it's absolutely essential to have a national project um something which looks to take the nation state um and use its use its powers to 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 change society which are considerable um but on the other hand it's also the case that there's i think one of the things which has really the end of history period which you might say is between 1989 and 2016 um really saw the acceleration of a variety of trends which mean that the basic mechanisms of representative democracy have been hollowed out so parties trade unions churches all these associational groups so there is a, a like there is a lot of work that still needs to be done in a quite basic way of of saying that politics is about representation it's about serving the interests of specific constituents constituents with names and addresses and you can't like you can't skip those those steps entirely because that's how you um that's who you're accountable to that's who yeah. you represent and that's what needs to be i think that's the big project really yeah. is like how do you re reverse these declines in the structures of representation well that's the thing right is that it has to be we have to think both on a global scale and a you know a national global scale of running you know running the the state um, according to the the will of the people, but we also need to address things locally first because that's quite literally how our lives function on a day to day basis is with these local 
interactions. The problem is that the overarching ideology that rules over both of these spaces is this liberal or neoliberal ideology and has, has used both the, the national global, um, you know, state level, um, control and the local and, and they're both feeding off of each other. Right. So that mm. this ideology kind of permeates, um, yeah, at, th- at both levels and one hand feed, you know, one hand washes the other in, in this scenario. Yeah. I think this is where the, the situation in Britain is, is probably slightly different to, to other, um, to some other situations because we, um, I think that it's partly about the the role that the EU play has played on British domestic politics because that's, I mean, you, you can have as many definitions of neoliberalism as as you as you like. There are a lot out there, and some of them are pretty useful, and some of them maybe not so much. But one that I'm particularly taken with is this basically this idea that neoliberalism is about encasing. Um, encasing the economy or from some other readings encasing democracy so that the two don't have any interaction there are certain sorts of economic structures which are not subject to domestic Mm -hmm. contestation and the way that this this worked and large part in the uk was through britain's membership of the eu we moved from being in some analyses being a nation state to being a member state which had different kind of meant that there were different models through which or different processes through which economic decisions were legitimated. Um, so I think that that level of the national in British context is really clear because like this, I think is gonna be the, the thing that ultimately will, will have shown Brexit to be a progressive trend is that British politicians can no longer say, well, it's not up to us, it's up to the EU. We have, you know, hopefully begun the process of reestablishing the accountability of our politicians, which any socialist, of course, wants as a step, would follow by many others towards, a, you know, a, a society with economic democracy. So it's, I think it's, a, it's it is, a, it is a tricky one because that's the the project facing, you know, the British left, such as it is at the moment. I would say. So uh, I don't, you know, and I don't want you to give away the ending of your of the end of history, <laughs> the ending of the end of the end of history. Uh, but uh, do you think that this direction, I mean, I, I think obviously like you're, you're critiquing it as it's happening and you're trying to bring up some very important points about, um, you know, what, what is happening to the left? Where are all these people going? And I, at least what Fox and I encounter a lot is that a lot of people, um, it's kind of like uh, pro wrestling fans, you know, pro wrestling fans, some of them want to believe that it's real forever right. and uh, they don't want to acknowledge that um, a lot of these things are just constructed uh, to give them busy work, to make them, to manage them, to make them feel like they're making a difference when in fact it's a, a doomed project or um, isn't, isn't going to connect with enough of the working class to, to make the changes that, that they desperately want to happen. Um, so what, what do you think is, um, you know, what is the, the direction that things would need to go in order to get the, the kind of redistribution that, that we really need? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I think the, the article or more generally my, um, my take is that there's, there's a very real temptation, um, 
for the left to essentially go down this anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic path, um, which is exactly um, looking to con contain and constrain that mobilization um, that, that, we've, that we've witnessed in the past, or that potential mo mobilization we've witnessed in the past few years. I think one possibility um, is that the, and this has already happened to, to a certain extent, probably more in Britain than the US, um, is you can have these kind of pro-worker conservatives who look to say, right, if the left doesn't want working class votes, if the left is looking to kind of to denigrate working class political action as motivated by xenophobia, uh, nativism, racism, fascism, all these sorts of things, well, actually, we can make a material appeal um, to, to these constituencies. So the question there would be, you know, to what extent will the, the bases of these um, parties, for example, in the, the Tories in, in the UK, their kind of more affluent Southern um, core, will, will they be able to stomach the, the kind of material concessions that will need to be made to, to retain these working class parts of their, of their coalitions? Um, and I think the, the, the case is in the short term is probably yes. So my sort of probably somewhat pessimistic um, analysis is that actually what we're going to see is rather than any of the sort of mobilization to, to, to get any sort of redistributive policies from the left, instead we'll see um, a kind of state capitalism, high expenditure, high investment from these kind of center-right parties. Um, and this, you know, this will be the, 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 the pattern of, of politics for, the, for, for this coming decade. Um, so I think that I, I don't, I don't see at the moment any force, even kind of in at its very earliest stages. Maybe with a couple of exceptions, which I would be happy to talk about, um, but they're quite small. Um, I just don't see any force that can can try and take that, like that political energy and desire and like I don't know, just interest at the at this point in in history and and kind of turn it into a. a progressive national kind of left-wing project i don't know if you guys have this in the uk but here there are people who's who are talking about um like a realignment happening where um now the working class is you know being sort of scooped up by m the more conservative parties um you know here it's the republicans um and we have people like you know right-wing hard right-wing pundits like uh, Tucker Carlson, who are, or even Trump to some degree, like sp speaking the words of the, you know, the working class, like saying the things that the working class wants to hear, needs to hear, and they're, ha they're happily doing it. I, I'm sure most of it is disingenuous, um, <laughs> you know, but it's sort of, it's, it's this shift now where all of a sudden the the conservative parties, the Republican parties are becoming the like the voice of the working class, which is very strange. But it sounds like, you know, a similar thing is happening in in the UK, probably in, in most of these like Western, you know, liberal um, yeah. democracy type places. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there was a recent piece in um, Jacobin, which Ben Fong, who's the, the editor at, at Damage, wrote with um, Dustin Guastella, 
where they basically went through these um i thought it was it was very good this kind of anti-elitist uh, pro-worker conservatives and they said um that they you know they they thought that these claims were were quite were quite politically um constrained by the structure of the republican party which is basically a tax cutting uh, party and i think that's probably i think that's probably about right but that same limitation or constraint doesn't apply in the uk so we saw in 2019 um that the Conservative Party was more popular with low-income voters than with high-income voters. Um, and this is also in the context of, you know, the Labour Party, so the nominally left-wing party, um, becoming less and less popular with, with low-income voters, its, its membership being overwhelmingly um, high-income. Um, and so I think that realignment is pretty, we're seeing it happen in real time at the moment in, in Britain, I think. Um, and that's, I guess, part of the analysis or the my suspicion that's in the, in the article, but in reacting to this, the left is, instead of trying to reverse this or, or, or reconnect or connect even with, uh, with working class constituents um, of any sort, instead is looking to actually create that distance politically, culturally, um, yeah. and, 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 and in kind of identity terms. Um, and this, you know, if this trend continues, we will see the Tories being a working class party and Labour being um, a middle class liberal party. Yeah. So, you know, we've already had a long while of Tory rule in this country. And that's, you know, I think that's going to be set to continue just in terms of the numbers if that realignment is... Uh, continues in the way that I think it has been going so far. And so in the UK, when you, I feel like I heard this from somebody in the UK that you, you, if, if you don't, if a party doesn't get a certain amount of votes, the election is kind of like thrown out. So like actually not voting can be a way to sort of voice your opinion. Right. Is, is that true? Is that accurate? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think this might have been somebody who is trying to trying to uh, get people to to not vote. No, we have a very um, so. I guess one of the big questions is whether we should have proportional representation, which we don't have. We have the first past the post system of six hundred and fifty constituencies, and then whoever gets the most votes gets MP for that for that area. Um, so there's all. I don't think it. You know, it's not like the electoral college. It's not quite that bad but there's still adequate scope for gerrymandering of all various different sorts and for some parties getting a pretty high proportion of the vote um, yeah. and getting no seats in in parliament this happened and actually it's it's been parties on the far right which is part of the whole story of how the, the brexit referendum came about because you basically had this pressure group on the on the right of the conservative party the uk independence party which was was taking a lot of votes off the Tories. So they were like, okay, we need to get rid of them once and for all. We have a referendum. What's the worst that can happen? Um, you know, split, almost split the Tories, almost split Labour. So it was, yeah. a, you know, it was a big, uh, it was unintended consequence of a, essentially a, a one aspect of the British political system. Yeah. So like, so for people like us now, we're heading into a, a time where, who, like, who do you even vote for, right? I mean, it's always been like, voting for the lesser of two evils but now at this point it's like it really is like you you vote for either the the 
the party that is supposedly moralistically progressive or whatever, but they're doing the most damage, or you vote for a party that is, you know, a little bit more morally abhorrent, but is maybe, I don't know, speaking for people who are, you know, the, the more average person. And I, I don't know, at this point, do, do we start looking to build our own third party? It seems like whenever that happens, it, it always, it, it never ends well that it's, mm -hmm. there's always this like two party, you know, the system that's just dominating. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the perennial question to a certain yeah. extent. Um, but I do think uh, viewed from one, from one perspective, certainly it's, you know, things are not looking particularly good because you vote for typhoid or cholera um <laughs> and it's the same in the british context the choice is not particularly appealing but given that you know everything that we've said about this potential realignment and i think in the british context it is clearer that there's there's certain i mean the the the, the best one of the best things about this you know all of these changes is that i guess at least the the tories see that working class constituencies have to be appealed to on some material base there was a famous comment by a new labor advisor peter mandelson who said basically the working class has nowhere else to go mm. um so we don't need to do any policies for them we just need to appeal to the kind of middle the voters in the middle um so on the you know the, the to take a more optimistic approach the fact that there is this potential realignment or the the, the class basis of politics seem to be to be changing this presents a whole load of opportunities um a whole like realm of possibilities um i mean my just in the british context i think that it's going to be difficult to see any any radical change until the labor party is essentially continues this or completes this this um development this trajectory that it's on and then there's the possibility for a new for a new party um in, in the British context, at least. I think things are, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna say there's a secret uh, approach or answer in the in the US, but um, at least history has, at least the end of history is over. Hmm. And there's there's at least a, a, a possibility of, of some sort of representative class-based politics coming back. Yeah, and what, what we do know is that when if, it, if a realignment happens and there is a majority of working class people that come together to demand redistribution, there's a very good chance that these ideas of minoritarianism and of uh, consultative democracy, uh, that will magically be recuperated and weaponized against a working class that is demanding redistribution. I, I'm pretty confident about that <laughs> because we let it, I mean, people on the left let it happen over and over and over again well um, and maybe yeah. our approach needs to be not that we're like this left tip of the you know the liberals the the democrats or the labor party that we're you know maybe we we skirt around the the other end you know because this sort of they've set up this paradigm where they say you're either on one end or the other end of this spectrum what if we need to like reject that spectrum completely and say, we're not like the, the left edge of this bullshit spectrum that you, you guys have set up for us. 
we're this like you know i hate saying like that third way but we're you know just sort of the, it's a it you know i i don't even want to like we shouldn't even appeal to, to this bullshit we should because then it you know it legitimizes it right because they they have this control over us because it's a cultural divide right um yeah yeah. So uh, it's, it's one big party elites versus, you know, the working class, but they don't want us to see it that way. They want us to see it as the, Oh, the elites are divided in these two, you know, classes and they sort of separate the working class with cultural issues. Yeah. I, I think this is the, the, the question that if all the analysis in the past few years, um, I'm not saying just me, I'm saying obviously from, I think anybody who would call themselves a sort of materialist of any sort, or who would say that, you know, politics is about, about material, material interests. Um, if, if that analysis is, is right, then it, it does raise a number of questions. And I guess like, or, or it, it makes you see things in a certain way, which I think can be quite useful. One of which is that, so on our podcast, we've, we've been called some, some nasty names for having some, um, some people on who are what I would say, for example, Angela Nagel, like a, um, a social dem, an old social democrat of various sorts, and that apparently makes us red brown or uh -huh. Nazbols or Nazarites, class Nazi reductionist. Yeah, all these things. Which um, um, <laughs> I was talking to my my parents about this, and they were like, "What? What do these words mean? <laughs> Is this a bad thing to be or a good thing?" Um, so basically the, the people who aren't extremely online are like, what the fuck does that mean? Um, uh -huh. I don't think the people who say it even know what it means. Like, it, I mean, it, I think they're, they're in their mind, it means that you're dangerous because you are um, looking to put forward certain interests. You're not yeah. saying that, you know, and ultimately the interests of the majority, but that's, you know, that's socialism 101 in my opinion. So right. I think this is so that so the first thing I think is that all of those kind of boundary policing and who you can talk to and who you can argue with and who you know whose ideas you might want to be interested in hearing all of those things need to essentially be thrown out the window because we're in a process of realignment to limit yourself to ideas that that um, have preemptively passed some sort of test is I think very unwise um, yeah. And I think is, you know, something I would reject. Basically. Well, I think it's rooted. I think it's rooted, ironically, in essentialist thoughts, right? It's this yeah. idea that the that people are essentially racist. I, I see people float ideas out there that like, being racist feels good. It's, oh, it's like, like human beings are just like, essentially bad, or maybe it stems from, you know, this lack of having any kind of religion now we live in this like post-religion world and people have this sense mm. they still have this sense of guilt you know this original sin where the oh human beings are bad we need to repent where you know you have to work hard to be a good person whereas I, I like to take the the opposite you know as as somebody who comes from a I think a socialist position or egalitarian position is that human beings are inherently good and that's why we should have say we should all have a say over how we we organize our societies right otherwise what what the fuck are we doing you know if we think that people are essentially like bad and need to be corrected and and you know wrong then then how are we ever going to 
how do we how do we get to the conclusion that we need to run a, a society democratically if 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 it hinges on everyone having a say, but all those people are also inherently very bad and and love doing racism? It's it's mm. it, it 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 doesn't make any sense to me fundamentally. Yeah, it's it's it, I mean it it we're in a uh, I guess in some ways quite historically retrograde kind of period for these in in these sorts of terms that that the basic right of everybody to have a say in politics is in, in the way that a society runs is is being contested in more or less overt ways if you, i think it's like if you go back to original arguments against suffrage or against women's suffrage it's like the the similar sort of structure mm. of argument still pertains there yeah. is a there is a real doubting of working class people's cognitive yeah. Uh, abilities to understand complex politics to not get um to not get taken in by by russian bots to kind of right. to actually be able to read the news and know reality from from fiction um and yeah i mean it's it's the, where we're at, at the moment that we have to sort of make those those arguments whether they're in a moral or or a kind of in, in another register it still seems the case that that's where we're at at the moment just defending yeah. that that kind of well, basic you, point. You have to be able to talk to working class people. You have to be able, you have to not be afraid to have conversations. And if you go out and you talk to like just average working class people, don't even bother like who cares if they're Republican, Democrat, whatever the hell, the hell they are, however they register, whatever. Don't think about that. Just talk about like fundamental issues with them of like, you know, what's right and wrong, how we should run society. These people get it. People get it. Working class people are like so into they intuitively get it because they see they can see the contradictions better than anyone else because they live it. They live material contradictions. And therefore, like, you know, that's the thing is like our 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 governments, our ruling class want us to fear each other. They they demonize the working class. They say these people are inherently wrong and bad just because of their cultural signifiers, because of the things that they've, you know, been brainwashed to sort of participate in. But working class people, they get it. <laughs> they get it more than like academics. They get it more than, than PMC. They get it more than these people who, who don't live in as much material contradiction. Um, yeah. We have to stop being afraid to to just go talk to people. They're not going to hurt you. There's this idea that like, oh, these people want me dead. No, they don't. They're they're just scared. Most people are just scared. You know, most I think people, that yeah, yeah. On the part of the liberal left, that that is probably a projection. Um, yeah. That thinking the working class people, you know, want want um, harm done to them. I mean, one of the yeah, it's um, I guess it raises a big question about the whether that's the left's project or not. And I mean, you know, all of these terms can be quite confusing. I think the left versus socialist versus mm -hmm. Marxist versus like what materialists, populists, right? Um, whatever. But yeah, I mean that that would I think be one of the predictions that I would would sort of make is that I don't I don't or all the evidence that I've seen, um, and is that the it's not just that the the left doesn't really want to talk to the the working class but actually the class interests are different and so there's not yeah. there's an there's a desire to speak on behalf of mm -hmm. to have often even to have material benefits um given to 
but in terms of giving decision making to treating as a subject rather than an object of politics yeah. the left the left doesn't necessarily have that orientation towards a working class so it's you know there's a long way to go to try and get to get where i think i wouldn't say the real left or the true left or anything like that but like whatever the the group is and i think the post left isn't even a good a good uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> phrase either although i think there's a lot of things which are very useful in their their critique and they're asking sure. the, they ask the right practical questions what do we do um but yeah i mean there's a long way to go to, to get working class representation and power which is you know that's what i would say socialism's about yeah well they're all it's all just like labels right it's all just and it doesn't matter like you know i i saw somebody tweeting recently that like don't worry like don't worry about what you you aren't your politics you are a person and that's like where we all we all have to like hinge our our efforts is is through our our shared humanity right it like all this stuff is just labels and jargon it's like what the, this is about is our shared humanity and that we all have common you know common interests and that's how we survive as a species is by sharing the workload <laughs> you know that's why that's what separates us from I guess not not insects insects do that too right we're like insects oh, yeah. we're like the bees <laughs> we're all we're all bowing down to the queen <laughs> yeah we, we still have a queen i mean literally yeah, that's right yeah <laughs> forget about that sometimes we have metaphorical you know yas queens here we have many of those <laughs> so basically you're just saying that we should all log off and grill <laughs> um <laughs> no, I think grilling is good, um, independently of whether you've logged off or or not. I'm not saying log on and grill, stay mm -hmm. logged on and grill. Um, no, I think I think the, I guess the role of um, Twitter or social media in general in mobilizing people in developing arguments is pretty. I think is is declining rapidly. Um, the censorship is is even to the most biased person must be patently obvious that this is in no way a neutral uh, yeah. ground of any sort. Um, no, I, 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 you know, I, I think I would say overall, I'm very, very positive, very, very bullish, even in the sense of, I remember what politics was, was like uh, before 2016. Um, when I don't know what possessed me, but that was when I was a graduate student studying politics and it was just very dull, very, very dull. And now <laughs> things seem so much more open and the categories so much more, the basic categories so much more contested that, I mean, what is lacking, and this is hardly surprising at any institutions on the left, given the, the neoliberalizing and undermining of political parties, of trade unions, like who, who are the... Who are the real like who are the leaders what are these institutions that that, that are currently functioning there's not a, a not a big network of them and i mean that is going to take quite a while but it feels at least like the conditions of of possibility for emergence of these sorts of things is there whereas in like 2012 or whatever it was didn't really seem like that i don't think i can't even remember what it was like back it's the world has changed so much it feels like it's changing like more and more rapidly too even just like six months ago feels like so long everything's speeding up maybe that's just what happens as you get older i don't know the, is that like normal for for aging 
I guess if some people talk about social acceleration, um, but I think at like the last six months or the post, like basically the like after March of last year, all the time seems to mix into uh, into one. I think that the effect of lockdowns and and gen and those sorts of measures um, have been completely depoliticizing. It's been this massive demobilization. Yeah. Like that is one thing that that is tougher to take is the absolute cancel cancellation of like the public life spaces and and opportunities to discuss politics and do politics do any sort of organizing it's way more difficult yeah and so i think when you just reduce to a to the private citizen i.e., working at, at home if you know if you're a member of the pmc like me and you work from mm -hmm. home um and you get things delivered and all this sort of thing then you're just reduced to a private citizen and it, yeah. it it you don't have any of these markers which help you differentiate um kind of different parts of of time because that public political side of things is much more difficult to access yeah there's no there's no public life anymore i know I, i'm i've always been more of a shut-in myself i'm not like a massive social butterfly or anything and we were kind of living like pod people before <laughs> it's like embarrassing like we transitioned into a uh, post-covid world like uncomfortably well like it our our day-to-day -day lives didn't change and it's kind of like shameful and embarrassing but i i miss it too i miss like actually going out to see other human beings um it's it's sad not to have that option anymore um yeah. especially in the winter <laughs> but yeah i think um some yeah a friend of mine was speculating like what what would you give for just like a bad pint of beer with yeah. like some t terrible banter with with some like the worst conversation that you've had in, <laughs> in the pub like how much would you pay just to have that like tonight yeah um, right yeah and i think i think you know not to kind of make it into a like beat down you know ragging on the left sort of session but i think the 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 left has been in british context it's very clear has been far too cavalier to say these things not that they don't matter but that protection of vulnerable people is is counterposed to all of these parts of society and, and politics um and has has been often quite vocal in in supporting the demobilization of lockdowns, their extension, various things like this. And I think the, you know, I think there's going to be long-term costs of these, of these lockdowns, but I think the, there what there hasn't been is a, is a really like a solid, consistent critique of lockdowns and support of other measures. And there are other measures that could happen from a left-wing perspective. Um, like what? So you could have shielding of, of vulnerable um groups i think there's mm. a you know that's that basic approach of saying you know i think we knew quite early and it's pretty clear now that there's different effects for different parts of the population mm. and if you'd if you'd had a really consistent effort to 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 protect those people and to make sure that their lives are as good as possible um and i think people are really keen to get involved and to volunteer and to actually contribute something um, then there could have been a really different outcome. Um, yeah. but I think people like the resource of people has been really underused because yeah. we all kind of maybe fear each other a little bit more than we used to. So people are simultaneously wanting this to end 
and kind of trapped at home what uh, well I'm just projecting for myself speaking for myself but wanting to kind of if there was something I could do I would want to I would want to do it but that's not the strategy that states across the world have, have really tended to take I guess yeah it's almost like and it seems like other countries have handled handled the pandemic much better than you know the US or you know the UK or whatever but our countries are just sort of like in this rolling state of like lockdown, you know, spreading lockdown and they don't actually want to control or contain this thing at all because it's, you know, it's, it's a market opportunity. Might as well keep this, keep this party going as long as possible. Right. Yeah. I think it, it, um, it would be a, a real shame if the, you know, it's been, it will have been a year that's been that's been lost and i'm not saying that there's a there's a really obvious it's not a conspiracy that there's been an obvious alternative approach that hasn't been taken but i think the it does show something about the post political state that the response has been to say everybody is a potential threat to each other and what we need mm. to do is demobilize what we need to do is just basically shut down as much of society as we can because there is other ways to mobilize the, the the political and and human resources yeah. that you have in a society um but that you know that would be my argument that it reflects the fundamental weakness um of the state which is hardly surprising given the development of the 30 years prior um and the various sorts of dismantling through neoliberal measures yeah but yeah that's where we that's that's i think where we find ourselves today well, it's been a great opportunity for, you know, centralizing the control over, over society. And, you know, I say, oh, it's, it's a market opportunity. It's been terrible for, you know, small businesses, small and local economic, um, you know, people who participate in that level. Um, but it's, it's been one, a wonderful consolidation for these larger, you know, like Amazon and, you know, all this gig, gig, uh, gig working um, platforms. Pla yeah gig working platforms because yeah. yeah like you said everything is everything is delivered now everything is sort of people just sort of catering to those who can afford to um bubble themselves um yeah i mean i think if if you if you have a class analysis of who's really suffered it's been low-income workers who've been forced to 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 work and who's really benefited it's been particular um elements particularly of the you know that there are just uh pretty horrible tweets about how much uh jeff bezos's wealth has gone up in yeah. the last minute or day or whatever um and obviously it's not just him there's a whole sort of fraction of of people who've who benefited but it's been, it's been quite a small group but that's what you've seen, I think, in yep. in general, is a clear tran upwards transition of of wealth. Yep. Um, and where's the? There have been some people, I think, who've done a really good materialist critique of this stuff. But I think it's been it's been a minority. Um, and I think you know that's kind of some of the same themes that we've been talking about. I think it's like where's the left's desire to to look to the mass of you know the mass of people, but look to to the majority of people and, and see what are people's material interests and see how to to engage them in sorts of political action um that hasn't been there at all instead it's been probably more on balance been pro lockdown than anti-lockdown 
Yeah, you know, this sort of circles back to what we were talking about before. I remember in the beginning of the, the pandemic, you know, Alex and I have done some sort of housing organizing. And in the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, wow, th this is an opportunity, right? It's become very clear, um, the contradictions. So now this is an opportunity for people who cannot, who don't have any income, who can't afford to pay rent for them to quite literally just start forming tenant councils, tenant associations, tenant unions to protect themselves. This is an opportunity for the, the working class to kind of seize on this moment where they have the perfect excuse to sort of band together. But very quickly, we saw how they're just, there, there was no foundation to build anything. Um, there's no, I, what I should say is ideological foundation for that. It was like, there was an opportunity, but there's no, there's all these sort of like left-wing groups with their, they're all sort of the tips of, you know, the democratic establishment or, or whatever. Um, and they, like, like we said before, they became these sort of consulting firms and they seized on the opportunity. They were the ones who jumped in and said, okay, we're going to handle it in, in the way we want to handle things. And instead of us coming in and saying, we, we should come in this, seize this opportunity from a, you know, materialist, um, egalitarian um, perspective, they're the ones who came in and cons and consulted and and mobilized. They, you know, we were talking before about mobilizing all these people who are like, wow, shit is fucked up right now. What do I do? And they mobilize those people for their, you know, for their interests to get, you know, to ultimately to vote. To vote, right. To vote Joe Biden into office. To vote, you know, all these Democrats who have all the cultural signifiers of being socialist or whatever. Um you know, and not to not to give uh, Michael White too much credit, but at the beginning of 2020, and Mike, for the listeners, Michael White is the uh, one of the co-creators of Occupy Wall Street, uh, self self-proclaimed, who's now um, peddling kind of like the future of activism type consulting and teaching and books and stuff. Um, so he said at Davos in early 2020 about how uh, you know he it was a very controversial thing that he went to Davos um, to to meet with all the billionaires and to give a talk and all that kind of stuff. And he said something uh, very telling at that time where he, he was saying something about how like, oh, you know, billionaires are very intrigued with the idea of activism um, to mobilize people. And as an activist, like how could you turn down that opportunity to be in that room, you know, talking about that. And uh, this is very, I mean, it's very interesting uh, and not to not to dabble in like left left wing conspiracy theories or anything like that, but interesting how billionaires essentially pay people to mobilize the population um, to get outcomes that are very compatible with billionaires. Like billionaires' wealth has exploded, while all these social movements have also exploded, uh, you know, globally, um, and that that's that's what happened. Like, like that's, that, you know, billionaires wealth went up while all these social movements went on and the social movements ultimately uh, drove people to the polls to vote in Joe Biden. Um, that's just what, that's just what happened. I, so I just don't know, like, you know, some, something's, something's obviously wrong here. <laughs> I, I, There's no base. We have no base. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that if you 
were imagining starting from from nothing starting from zero in terms of like making a, making an organization um it's it's worse than that it's it, you know it's the defeat of the organized working class was a historical setback of just gigantic proportions um and we don't have the institutions that we might like to have but you know it i think that you know means that we can or we have to be clear to criticize the ones that that we don't that we don't like and i think alex what you were saying about you know the the some some of the i was going to say synergies but actually that, that might be the word that they would use so i'd go for it some of the synergies <laughs> between certain um ngos and certain billionaire interests um yeah, that's that needs to be pointed out. I think the the anti-Semitic, no, <laughs> the um, uh, the I guess the the kind of activism washing of of great wealth is 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 real. Um, and good way to put it. And it, <laughs> activist washing. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the the, the NGO sector. Um, is an is an i know you guys talk about this quite a lot on your on your on your podcast and i think it's important and i think it's going to become sort of more important as a way to channel some political energies in the british context at least the the inter i think one thing which is often overlooked is the kind of um the internal structure of some of these organizations i think there's some good some good critiques as one no such thing as a free gift um, which kind of looks at some of these macro questions of how do uh, big foundations which get tax breaks kind of, I guess, open up new markets and through philanthropic. Um, so I was air using air quotes, which obviously you can't do on a podcast, um, quote, mm -hmm. unquote, um, philanthropic um, uh, for, for philanthropic reasons is, is, is doing things which ultimately massively benefit the non foundation part of that business eg the bill and melinda gates foundation doing loads of stuff which is massively beneficial for microsoft in the, in the long in the short term um but yeah what's often overlooked is how these organizations i think serve to to, to become a training program for certain sorts of um people who speak the right language who have the, the specific and characteristic set of class interests who who then can quite easily shuffle into to various sorts of um political roles as well so i mean that's that would be my my project uh, projection is that the the role of ngo in in ngos in left wing or kind of post left populist politics will will massively increase in the next few years or not massively will increase in the next few years yeah that's certainly the direction things are going certainly the direction um yeah i mean we get to see it at ground zero here because we you know live in the town where uh, Warren Buffett's son, Peter Buffett, and his Novo Foundation, who you could probably categorize as the furthest left, you know, philanthropic organization that funds Black Lives Matter, you know, pretty much anything, you know, uh, democracy now, pretty much anything you can think of that's sort of a left wing, you know, seen as a left wing movement. Um, they've put money behind them uh, and you know George Soros is always the one that's people talk about and that's convenient because then people say oh you're just being anti-semitic but um just say Peter Buffett instead or Warren Buffett because 
you know, they don't have any of the identitarian markers, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I know we live at the, at the ground zero for this guy. He, he lives in our community. He's doing a giant experiment in our community. Um, so, so I read, I just, I, I read some, uh, just changed the, actually not really changed the topic, but changed the location. Um, unless this yeah. is where, where you're, where you live, but the richest um, county in the whole of America, I, I thought it'd be Manhattan, but it's not. It's Jackson Hole in Wyoming, which mm. is mm. also this place which has a massively high concentration of nonprofits of various sorts. And it, mm. what it turns out they're doing is um, getting, I think it's mainly it's some East Coast people, but also Silicon Valley types who then like have a, a I guess, a country mansion in the Wyoming yeah. wilderness, which and it sounds and looks from photos very beautiful um these non-profits are there specifically to to stop any sort of um development of of anything which will spoil this this natural beauty um yep. and yeah and are very very successful to the extent that working class people who've lived in that area for for quite a while mm. are now being forced out and forced to commute back into that um, yeah, in, back with without adequate transport links, and it, so it's, it takes them ages. So the, I think uh, yeah. I see an article here that says uh, nonprofits now outnumber people in Jackson Hole. Oh my god! <laughs> so there, there you go. That's that's staggering. That's amazing. I got to well, learn more about this. It's that's really cool. But that's like the playbook, right? Because we live so we're in the Hudson Valley, where um, you know it's also like beautiful, you know, bucolic area, not densely populated. But it's close enough to New York City. We're only two hours north of New York City. Um, so that's it's convenient now for all these elites to and we we do have a lot of elites in this area. It's it's bizarre when you think about it. But they they can have like an outsized influence because our population is so is not as dense. There's less competition. They can they can sort of play around with their money and they can pretend to be, I'm the good guy. I'm investing, you know, even if they don't know directly what they're perpetuating, they can say, Oh, I'm part of the solution. I'm, I'm investing in all these like good things. And, and really what ends up happening is it accelerates gentrification and all the local people get priced out because it now becomes like this really desirable place to live. They become a huge part of the economy there. You know, all these NGOs create, you know, uh, jobs for people to work at make work jobs and now all these people are incentivized to not get rid of the problem but to perpetuate it so that they can continue their jobs even though i'm sure there's plenty of people in these organizations who don't want that but there's still the incentive there uh so yeah that, that's like the playbook now so i'm sure in in jackson hole the same thing is happening as as that's happening here in kingston new york in the hudson valley and the catskills yeah i think it, it's i guess the the at the same time it, all of these organizations if you think about the i guess the the positive or potential positive social good of people coming together at a community level to solve problems it's a, it's um in some ways you know difficult to argue against because i think some of the um local aid sort of societies around covid in in like in my area for example the 
um the pro-social i think there's a what am i trying to say there's a pro-social like desire or impulse that people have that i think is massively underserved by um the sort of economy the sort of society that that we live in um so it's just the i think the turning of that positive impulse towards a set of institutions which are just there to reproduce the existing wealth yep. structure um is pretty it's, I think it might well be pretty successful, but it just, it's pretty, um, it's pretty terrible, I guess. <laughs> That's what yeah. I well, and what, what ends up happening and what we've seen firsthand is it's impossible, absolutely impossible to do any kind of local organizing mm. because anybody who's, um, anybody who, who has an ounce of like, oh, things are bad and I want to be part of the solution gets sucked up by these, um, these organizations. And then what happens is these organizations are tied to all the, the larger interests. Like for example, we have a luxury development that is trying to get built and they're trying to get, you know, tax breaks. We're, we're currently the most gentrifying locality in the U S right now. Um, our home prices are skyrocketing yet. They want to build, um, you know, this luxury, with with a with a tax grant, they want to build this luxury um, building, and it's th- this project is tied to Andrew Cuomo. Um, Peter Buffett was on the board that uh, that approved, the, you know, that helped award this money, this this tax grant money to this developer. Um, and now none, so none of these organizations have any incentive to oppose this because, and many of them, the same people who, who sit on, who sat on that board are part of these organizations. So now, you know, nobody wants to go against the wishes of the, you know, the heads of these organizations. So now we have this, this thing that's going to cause massive gentrification. It's going to make the housing problem even worse here. And all these people who say, oh, housing is a human right and this is terrible, they can't do shit about it because they they work for this um, this conglomerate of of organizations that's helping pass this thing through. Mm-hmm. So or the blob. The blob, yeah. So it, 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 you can't even do anything locally because you're fighting yeah, you're fighting the this giant power yeah. structure. And you know, another dynamic too is that uh, the revolutionary potential of working class people, um, a lot of them are being conditioned to, to be clients to these nonprofits rather than, you know, as people with agency. Yep. Um, so, I mean, uh, to the day I die, like I say that they have agency, but if there's like 20 nonprofits saying like, oh, just, you know, fill out our intake form and we'll right. get resources to you. I mean, I don't blame anybody for, for wanting that, but, uh, yeah, it kind of cuts off the, if, if that's, if that's seen as like the extent of the possibilities of these organizations is that you get routed into receiving resources for your particular situation rather than organizing to take over, uh, you know, and redistribute yeah. the resources, then that's kind of a problem. Yeah, I guess that. And I think this situation will, which is, you know, very understandable. That's, you know, the way I would respond. And I think who, who wouldn't? Is I guess it will persist as long as there isn't an alternative, you know, maybe provided by the left, but but maybe not, um, where participation leads not to, 
you know, not to, I guess, resources coming in straightforwardly, but to decision-making, say, i.e. power. Um, and that, mm. I think, is, is, has not been an alternative that's been yeah. available for the past, you know, however, however long it would be. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a very, it's a, we're a long way from, from being able to do that in, in the UK as well. So, yeah, I mean, you can sort of see how that desire to change things gets, gets uh, managed through, I guess, these, these NGOs and this complex of different, um, you know, different interlocking interests, um, which look to give, I guess, the minimum level of uh, benefits or compensation in order to keep things the way that they are. It's, it's just this never-ending loop. It's this never-ending loop. Yeah. And, and I hate to even bring this up, but yeah, like even, even these, the furthest left groups like DSA, Democratic Socialists, even these local groups are not willing to um, go up against NGOs. You know, they're all, all these sort of, we, we need to really sort of take into account how much of what we even consider the left is working for this, is this, unaccountable establishment power that that is supposedly very woke and progressive it's it's really like we need to to take a hard look at that stuff yeah and george kind of goes over this in the article um when he describes the defeated left populists um the base for them is considered the lower pmc of university educated urbanites finding only insecure uh, insecure employment and unable to afford housing in the metropolitan centers where the high status and interesting or socially valuable jobs they seek are overwhelmingly clustered. And that's kind of, uh, that's that tracks with, with a critique of the DSA um, where a lot of the people that are attracted to DSA are kind of these, uh, that group that you describe where they're educated and they, you know, they're qualified for these NGO jobs and being in DSA is kind of a resume builder, a way to get these progressive bona fides, um, where you know you can you can accomplish some things and then get a a job that you're educated for that you went into debt to get educated for. Um, that's kind of the dynamic. Yeah, I I mean I think that that I guess they're a much maligned group, the the lower PMC or the the those at risk of of being kind of overqualified and dropping down into to pro to workerization um but yeah i mean i think there's there's a there is a real a, a politically active group there um and i guess the question is you know how do they uh, or one of the, the questions which might we might see answered in the next kind of couple of years is how does that group make the most of its um of its training of its political experience of its you know of its opportunities given that the continuation of the corbyn project or the bernie project seems more um more risky so yeah i mean i think that's that would be i guess i'm just agreeing with 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 what you're saying there that it it makes sense it's rational for that group lots of competition for for places in the university um use the DSA as a, as a resume builder to get a good job at, um, at an NGO, which is, you know, socially conscious and maybe kind of interesting. You get to meet people, you get to kind of organize, you get to do some, 
some thinking, all that sort of thing. It's like, yeah, you can't eat. I, I don't sort of dismiss that group um, in any way because it's that's what they've they've been produced, created by a certain political and social structure, and you know it's rational for them to to go into these jobs if they exist. You know, yeah, why not? Yeah, thinking about people as rational actors, right? I, that's a, that's what I always come back to, as well as as people are. A result of their material circumstances and and they're just acting rationally um for their own their own interests and that's you know that's sort of like the crux of like why we have to hit this wall of like well it's not you know the the revolution's not going to be headed by the by maybe downwardly mobile pmcs or even upwardly mobile pmcs it's not going to be headed by academics who you know are sitting around thinking about the problems i mean sitting around thinking about the problems is really important too but if we could marry that sort of you know that mobile mobilization that is felt that urgency that is felt by actual people with um you know material urgent material concerns with marry that with this more thought through ideology then we might start to get somewhere yeah and i think it's a good thing ultimately to talk in terms of interests um like what yeah. are your material interests what are mine um mm -hmm. i think you know liberalism or liberals today don't really want to talk about that they want to talk about moral um questions or issues because then they yeah. can uh, put put the argument on more beneficial terrain but ultimately if you talk about material interests you can you can easily advocate, you can, e you can come up with 10 things off the top of your head, which will improve life for the majority of people in the US or, or the UK very, very easily. Um, and that I think you have to, if you can make those arguments and mobilize people behind those demands, it seems like, you know, there's always a room, there's always, if, if you see people in the way that you were, you were saying, like, as rational as interest as materially self-interested that's actually a good thing um and i think you know th that's the reason to argue against particularly radical liberals who would say you know politics is a realm of morals it's a realm of you know of, of who's like who's morally right who's morally wrong and say well no it's like who gets what and who how do you how are you accountable to your to the people you represent You know, this article is great um, for people listening. Please go read Damage Magazine, uh, Moral Minoritarianism from the Ashes of Left Populism by George Hoare. Um, yeah, because it's a great article that really covers just these big shifts, really summarizes uh, some, some of these issues and moving forward, what we're, what we're going to see um, now that we have Orange Cheeto Man out of the way, we can really start to... <laughs> focus on the real problems hopefully yeah we're just gonna push biden left <laughs> with all of the leverage that, that the left it's that simple it's a, it's <laughs> it's good that it, things are clear um what, what the political task is we have to find out what streaming platform he subscribes to and then get good content on that streaming platform and the content show it to work. him and then he'll get better It'll, he'll do the work by watching the content and he's going to get better. <laughs> he, so. he does seem like maybe, maybe Facebook could be like one of those 
he doesn't really understand it, but he goes on it. I mean, Trump was such a Twitter guy. He was like, he was, yeah, he was actually very good at it as well. You know, we need, we need, I think we need hackers on the left to get into Biden's Facebook and sign him up for all kinds of like left book type pages. Like, you know, get him on like the Gravel Institute, get him on all the meme pages and then he'll see, and then he's going to learn, he's going to learn how to do better. And, uh, I, I look forward to what happens after he he gets brainwashed by Facebook. <laughs> he's at this point, they're just like he's like a reanimated corpse at this point. He it doesn't even matter what he thinks. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I'm, no, he's the uh, president. We have to push him left. Yeah, I mean, it, it's he's your he's your president, guys. You know, that's uh, <laughs> it's your it's your not my president. But no, I think um, Trotsky said all the battles that determine the future of the world will be held on American soil. So we're we're counting mm. on you guys to you know to push Biden left. Um, I got bad news for you. <laughs> we're screwed. <laughs> You're counting on us. Then the battle is already lost. Oh no! I'm 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 I'm, I'm very pro-American. I think that makes me quite like in a, a, a minority of the British left. But yeah, the idea of America is pretty good. The practice of america is you know it's kind of it's kind of getting there it's got yeah it's got room for improvement like yeah but don't we all you've been listening to the space commune podcast i'm fox i'm alex uh, I'm, I'm george from alpha punga punga thanks for having me thank you for coming on this is awesome yes, thank you go listen to george's um podcast the Off at Bunga Bunga podcast and um, check out Damage Magazine. A lot of great articles in there. Also pre-order the book. It's called uh, The End of the End of Politics. And uh, it sounds like they've been building up to it and working on it for a long time. And uh, I definitely want to check it out when it comes out. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, guys. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. This is